0: Friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis chapter 1. As this morning we look back at this passage that we've already spent some time looking at in recent weeks. uh, To zero in on, on what it means to be human. Taking our cues from the God who made us. Who defined what it means to be human and who gave us such a clear testimony to what he's done in these first chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, Earlier this week, I started a book by a Frenchman named Alan Ehrenberg called The Weariness of the Self. This book was highly recommended from multiple sources, and I can already see why. Now, on the one hand, this is a super academic book. It's uh, written by a sociologist, a professor. It's full of stats and all sorts of footnotes. So it's not for everybody, uh, and it's a book of history. It's a book trying to explain how what we call depression became the most widely diagnosed mental health challenge in the world. It's a book by an academic, not by a therapist, not by a pastor. And he makes it super clear that it's in a book about how to cope with depression. And it isn't a book that offers some sort of comprehensive account of all that causes depression or how to treat it. I don't think that book could be written. Because I've dealt with depression myself. And I've watched, I don't even know how many people I love fight through depression. And if I've learned anything about depression at this point in my life, it's that it is a deep mystery that is as painful as it is hard to pin down. That involves our bodies and our minds and our hearts in complicated ways that are always difficult to unravel. And every person struggling with it struggles uniquely with it and needs careful attention. I've learned that much so far. Nothing about this book that I'm reading changes that truth. But that said, sometimes what's helpful in a book like this one, by a guy who just studies patterns in society for a living, who's able to zoom back out and look at decades of track record. Sometimes what's helpful in a book like that one is that it can offer some perspective where there is commonality among people who struggle and use a term like depression to define what they're dealing with. This book isn't trying to resolve the mysteries of depression, but it is trying to give a general sense of what people who are depressed are saying about themselves, how they're describing their experience. So it charts decades-long progress in the the, the expansion of the number of people who are diagnosed with this condition, but then also speaks to those people and looks for patterns in what they're saying throughout the developed world, not just here in America, but, but throughout the West. Here's what's so interesting to me about what this guy is arguing. Based on his research, this guy is arguing that when people who are depressed talk about their lives they most often talk about their inadequacy. And people who are depressed talk about their lives. He's arguing, based on all his research, that the most common thread, the defining expression of their depression is a deep sense of inadequacy. Here's how he puts it. Depression presents itself as an illness of responsibility in which the dominant feeling is that of failure. The depressed individual is unable to measure up. He is tired of having to become himself. The depressed person is a person out of gas. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever felt that way? I have. I think it's a good sign that this guy's onto something. That in our culture right now, there is such a strong push to help people feel better about themselves. If you're feeling inadequate, what can you do about it? Well, one common option out there right now that you'll see all around is positive self talk. Create a habit of reminding yourself what's true about yourself. Tell yourself you are enough. Talk back to that voice inside that denies that this is true. If you see yourself as your own problem, why would you trust yourself when you tell yourself that you're enough? Why should I believe myself? Says who? What if the hashtag doesn't penetrate your heart? Another another option would be to try harder. That's a really popular one right now. This is the Rachel Hollis girl wash your face option. I did it. I have it all. Look what I've built for my life. If I can do it, you can too. And the question up underneath that statement is, why haven't you? I did it. Why haven't you? To me, that just feeds more inadequacy. So we need another option. How about this one? How about instead of just talking back to ourselves and instead of just trying harder, how about if we just, if, if if instead we reevaluate what our lives are for in the first place? What is your life actually for? Because friends, a sense of inadequacy—that's always going to be measured by some kind of standard. If we don't measure up, it's by some specific standard that we don't measure up. Some specific purpose that we're failing to meet. A hammer is a terribly inadequate tool to brush your teeth with a toothbrush would be a terrible tool for trying to drive a nail into a board but that isn't the fault of the hammer or the fault of the toothbrush they aren't adequate to a purpose that wasn't ever theirs in the first place you measure adequacy based on the purpose of the thing that you're evaluating what is your purpose i don't think you'll have any progress in overcoming a sense of inadequacy unless you stop and reevaluate What your life is for in the first place? And that's the question we take up today together. This is a series about what it means to be human. We're drawing from the first few chapters of Genesis. Last week we said one of the most important things to know about what it means to be human is to know that every human is created in the image of God. What does that mean? I tried to define it using a whole bunch of other people's good work as a special relationship to God with special responsibilities from God. Or, you want to put it a different way, it's a special connection to God that comes with a special calling from God. To be in God's image is a status that you hold and it's a summons you receive. This is core to what it means to be human. So core that we spent two weeks talking about it. Last week, we talked about the dignity that comes from being in God's image, the special connection to Him, the special status that comes with it. This week, we talk about the purpose that comes from being in God's image. The summons, the responsibility, the calling. Being made in God's image gives every human life, gives gives your life purpose. And I wanna spend this this time together explaining what that purpose is. I wanna begin by reading to you. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. If you're able, as I pick up in Genesis chapter one and verse 26, I'm actually gonna read all the way through verse 30 this morning. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. You can be seated. What is your purpose? What is your life for? The fact that you're in the image of God means three things. You were made first to represent God's rule. You were made second to rest in God's goodness. And you were made third to reflect God's glory. Point number one, you were made to represent God's rule. Perhaps the most obvious sign that when God made humans, he made something special, is that in this account, he gives humans a special job to do. He had not done that with anything else that he made. All of Genesis 1 is this building crescendo of creation, where God step by step orders what was chaotic and fills what was empty and gives to everything life. And he just speaks and it is. He speaks and it is. He speaks and it is. Then he gets to the creation of humanity and he begins to deliberate. He gets to the creation of humanity and he, and he begins to interact with what he's made. He gets to the creation of humanity and he deploys humanity on his purposes, but not as slaves. He sets up humans as royal agents, as standard bearers for his kingdom. That's what comes through in these verses. First in verse 26. Let them, let humanity have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and livestock and all the earth. Comes out again in verse 28, God's blessing to humanity comes with a, a calling, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. What does that mean? It helps to know that the the, the, the the notion of the image of God was not something Genesis came up with. The phrase image of God was was commonly used in other ancient texts for other purposes. So when we see this phrase come up in Genesis, what we're getting is Genesis redefining the phrase to to tell you what's true about who we are and to distinguish that from what's not true but was commonly believed at that time. So the word image of God was was often used in ancient literature. For 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 example, a a king who was said to rule as an an image of a deity, an extension of that God's authority or their realm on earth. And then as a next step... Sometimes these ancient kings would set up images or statues of themselves. So they themselves are the image of the deity. And then if they wanted to make sure that you knew whose territory it was out there, they'd put a statue or an image of their rule to, sh- to let you know this is, their, this is their turf. You come into this city and you pass by an image of the king. You're on his turf and you'll answer to him for what you do. When you hear "image," think I maybe mean, use slightly more modern examples. When you hear the image of God, think of, think of like the a signet ring of a king back in the old times. If if he was to send a message to somebody out in the empire somewhere, he'd send the courier with a scroll and then a seal of wax with his special image attached to it. That image says you're hearing from the king when you open this message. This message bears his authority. Or think now today of of. Uh, A presidential press conference. You know, a podium just like this one is just a podium until all of a sudden they hang on it, the seal of the office of the president of the United States. Well, now what comes from behind that podium, it bears the authority of that office. When you hear those words, you're hearing the words of the president. It's an image of the authority of that office. When God makes us in his image, he's setting us up as his royal standard bearers, kind of like his ambassadors in this world that he made. He's giving us a good work to do in his good world on his behalf. That's what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. That is your purpose, to represent God's rule here on earth. And that purpose, friends, it comes with two huge implications. Implication number one is we are accountable to him for what we do in his world. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything in it belongs to him. And God didn't give his world to humans in Genesis 1. It's, it's closer to the truth to say he gave humans to his world in a way as his representatives, in his image, to do his work on his behalf, in his way. It's just like an ambassador can't, can't give, say whatever he wants on behalf of his king or his government. Just like an ambassador speaks only with the authority given to him and only on behalf of one who controls the message. So as God's image bearers, we're accountable to, to rule in his world in the way that he would want us to because it stays his, it's never ours. I think it's important to say this here, friends, because these verses have been so badly misunderstood in the past. When I hear words like dominion or subdue, those words carry connotations for me and they're not good. It's hard not to hear those words on the backside of Genesis chapter 3 when we see just how selfish humans can really be or when I really pay attention to my own heart and see how selfish I am. And I hear the word dominion and subdue and I see it applied to what I'm supposed to do with the world out there. And in my mind, what I, what, the, the, basically what happens in my mind is I look out there at the world and I'm tempted to say, mine. And all too often in human history, that's exactly what the powers that be have said. They've looked out at the world and they've said, mine. If I can do it, it's good to do it. Whatever I have the might to do, I I have the right to do. Because dominion, subdue. But that's not the commission here. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to carry on God's work on God's agenda, not ours. And just look what God is about if Genesis 1 is our guide. I won't take the time to reread this chapter, but you might might consider doing that this afternoon. Genesis 1 begins with, with chaos, and the Lord brings order. Genesis 1 begins with emptiness. The Lord fills it. And step by step, the Lord gives life and cultivates it. Where he moves, there is flourishing. There is beauty and goodness everywhere. Everything as he made it thrives. And that's what his image bearers are meant to do in the world. The purpose of every human life is to seek to do what God would do with the skills and the resources he's given you to bring to bear on this world. Not to squeeze as much as we possibly can out of our lives in this world. Not to build as much as we can for ourselves in it but to invest ourselves in bringing good to God's world that was here before we were born and that'll be here long after we're gone. First big implication of this purpose God has given to your life is that you're accountable to him and how you use your influence in this world that he made and that still belongs to him. And the second big implication of this purpose for your life is that you are guaranteed meaningful work in this world. I don't know what you do with your days. I don't know how much you like it. And that's a little bit beside the point. Because you bear God's image, you are guaranteed a path to meaningful work. The image of God dignifies all work that brings flourishing in God's world however that might look. And friends, this is huge. One Old Testament scholar says that the image of God label was sometimes used of of the king or of the royal descendants as rulers who stand in for the gods. I mentioned that already. And you can see why a a king would want to say that about himself. You know, I am in the image of God. What I say, God says. I can do what I want to do. It's a, a claim to authority if used in that way. But Genesis has taken this familiar concept that was sometimes used but always reserved for the highest of the highest of the high. And making a radical claim, this status belongs to everybody. Every human is made in the image of God. You would never have said that in the ancient world. And This same Old Testament scholar says the term wasn't applied, this is a quote, it wasn't applied to a canal digger or to the mason who worked on the ziggurat, like a big tower. No, Genesis is saying every human, no matter what they're doing, bears his image and has a royal role to play in his world. And you, friends, you play that role wherever you bring order and flourishing to the world around you. In in some ways, the freedom that we have now to decide what we want to do with our lives is really, really great. In, In so many ways it is. But one major downside to that kind of freedom is a pressure that you may feel. To figure out what your niche is out of a sweeping range of possibilities, then dominate in your niche and then look for someone to tell you how great you're doing at it. It can be whatever you want to be, but you better make sure it's fulfilling It can be whatever you want it to be, but make sure you are passionate about it and stay passionate about it. It can be whatever you want it to be, but you better make sure you're really good at it, like a cut above. And you better make sure that when you do it, you just feel alive while doing it. Also, make sure you can live with the fact that it'll be the first thing most people will notice about you. It'll be the main thing that they use to judge you. And it would also be great if you could come to know what your thing is when you're, say, 17 or 18 years old because it might affect your your college applications and then your choice of a major. And if you haven't figured it out by 18, you have to figure it out by 22 because by then you'll need to know, are you going to go to graduate school or professional school or what kind of job are you going to get? So have fun. Be what you want to be. That's a suffocating pressure to live under. Who can bear that? Frankly, it's an unlivable standard that we've often put onto ourselves because, friends, think about it. A flourishing society is going to need some waste management. Maybe there's a guy out there who's passionate about waste management. I haven't met him yet. A flourishing society needs, needs somebody to work at the DMV, you know, to make sure that everybody's done what they need to do to get that driver's license, that those tags are updated at the right time in the right way. A flourishing society needs parents. (laughs) Parents who keep up with the daily accumulation of waste, speaking of waste management, of food prep, of, of cleanup, and on and on it goes. Not to mention the fact that in most places in the world, for most times in history, you just didn't have a say in what you were going to spend your time doing. You just did what you were going to do that was assigned to you in the slot that you happened to be born into. So if, if our common way of thinking about the freedom we have to make our mark in life were the standard for all of human life, almost everybody everywhere for all of time has failed and didn't even have a shot. It can't be right. That can't be what it means to be human. And it isn't. You were made not to do what you're passionate about, as as good as it can be to be passionate about what you're doing. You were fundamentally made to bring blessing to God's world. So the question for you about your purpose is, how can I? How can I cultivate flourishing in the people and places around me where God has put me in my time? Because this is what he made you to do. It will be fulfilling when you do it. Now, friends, I know... I'm barely scratching the surface here. We aren't even getting into any details and there are so many details to get into. We don't have the time this morning. This is one of those times when it's just so good to be part of a community of friends who want to do the same things. We, we want to hear from God about what our lives are for and work together to honor Him in the lives that He's given us. I want to send you out into your friendships, into your lunch conversations, into your small groups, into the Sunday Bible study class that's about the gospel at work and how you can apply God's word to the things you do with your time each day. Because there's so much more than we can do to answer these questions now, but the questions are clear. Are people and places around me flourishing? What could I do to represent God's interests and not my own? You were made to represent God's rule. That's point number one. Point number two is that you were made also to rest. In God's goodness, we need this balance. Just as God hadn't turned us loose to make this world our own, so he has not expected us to fend for ourselves in this world either. Far, far from it. And one of his highest purposes in creating us is to use our lives to prove how good and how kind and how trustworthy he is. Friends, only humans in all of this good world God made were given the ability to know that he made a good world, to know that he is good in this world, to know, in other words, what we're getting when he shares his goodness with us. You ever play one of those uh, icebreaker games? Uh, uh, If you weren't doing what you're doing with, with your life right now, what would you do? I've often used that when to start out a new members class just to try to get to know each other a little bit and because I've done that game a few times I've noticed that like like a, you know, a bowling ball going into the gutter I, I tend to go into this same place every time if I weren't a pastor I think what I'd like to do is be a food critic but not the kind that have to know anything about what makes for good food and not the kind who have to write anything about the food they've eaten just the kind that eats the good food <laughs> like, like the one who's who's testing the recipes before they go live on the blog and say, yeah, this one will work. This is a winner right here. Go for it. That's pretty much the role God has given us in his world. We're his taste testers. We taste of him, of his goodness, and we broadcast, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that's enough. You can see this theme come up immediately after God calls humans to do his work in his world. So we've already already read this section where he's saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. There's your job. And then right after he gives us that job, in verse 29, he says what he's giving to us. I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. I provide to you. And it was so. To be his image and not the source of this world is to think of yourself as a receptacle of his goodness, to receive from him with open hands, just like we get our food from him. You can see this thing all throughout the Bible, and not just with the food God provides, but with his watchful care over everyone that belongs to him. My, my favorite examples probably come out of the Psalms. Is Psalm 34, for example, you were made, friends, to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's your purpose. What does that mean? How do you taste and see something you can't even touch? I think Psalm 23 fills in the picture. Think of Psalm 23 as... As a down-to-earth example of what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Think think of Psalm 23 as a, a psalm you were made to sing as the purpose for your life. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want for anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He prepares good places for me to rest. He leads me beside still waters. He nourishes me. And refreshes me. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He shows me what I should do and where I should go. He hasn't left me alone alone to figure out life for myself. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. His rod is with me. His staff protects me. He comforts me. Think of Psalm 23 and Psalm 34 sandwiched together for the purpose of your life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That means trust Him and see where He leads you. This is your purpose, friends. Can you see how freeing it would be to actually believe that? I think back to the book I mentioned in the introduction: this weariness of the self, weariness inadequacy as the defining experience of our time where does that come from how did that feeling become so widespread in the west friends that comes from a culture that assumes it's up to you to prove yourself the purpose of your life is to make your mark do something that matters be somebody That sense of inadequacy comes from believing the weight and worth of your existence is on your shoulders to carry. And that is not a weight you were made to carry. It will crush you, it is not your purpose. What a relief to know that you were not made to prove your goodness, but to prove God's goodness. You were made as a receptacle, not a provider. The purpose of your life made in His image is to enjoy God forever, to demonstrate day by day by day through your dependence on Him that He is trustworthy. We'll spend our entire next sermon unpacking this theme, what it is to live as dependence on the God who made us. But for now... We move on to one last part of your purpose in your life, one last thing that it means to be made in the image of God, to be given a purpose by the God who made you. It means not only that you are to represent God's rule, not only that you are to rest in God's goodness, but finally that you are to reflect God's glory. The, the word that's used here for the image of God isn't totally different from the way we use the word image today. Uh, the last couple of weeks, Walter has been working on a big World War I presentation for his social studies class. He needed images to go with it. He needed a picture of Woodrow Wilson. Where do you go to get an image of Woodrow Wilson? You go to Google Images. You type in Woodrow Wilson, and then soon enough you can see exactly what Wilson looked like. It's not him, of course. But it looks like him. It is an image of him. It reflects him in ways that help us know what Woodrow Wilson looked like. That's partly what it means for us to be made in God's image. Our purpose is not just to work on God's behalf, but to live in God's world in a way that reflects God's goodness and beauty to others. Last week we talked about the image as coming with a status, a special relationship to God that that he decided to establish with us. And now we're seeing that this status comes with a summons. This relationship comes with a responsibility. The image of God means something for what we are by nature always. But but it also means something for what we're supposed to become over time as we live and grow. To be in God's image is prospective. One one Old Testament scholar compares this to what happens in Genesis 5, just a few chapters over. I won't take the time to read it, but Genesis 5 begins this genealogy of people who were born after Adam and Eve. And when Adam has his son, Seth, Seth is described as in the image of Adam. What does it mean for a son to be in the image of his father? At first, it's a special relationship. Seth has a different relationship to Adam than another father's son would have had to him. It's a status that a child has based on a connection to its father. But over time, through that relationship, the son will come to reflect something of his father, too. You know, at first, babies don't look much like their biological parents. People are just being sweet if they say otherwise. I mean, babies usually look like they've just gone 12 rounds with Mike Tyson. You know, at least at first, they're all puffy and swollen. But over time, as they grow, they begin to look a little more like their biological parents. Their faces and bodies start to take on similar characteristics. And as they're parented, they they develop character and habits for good or ill (laughs) that start to look something like their parents too. To say that Seth was in the image of Adam is to say all of that. And so it is with God. To say that we are in his image is to say we do have a special relationship with him already. And that never changes. But we also have a special reflection of him that we're to grow into. A special relationship is meant to lead to a special reflection of God's glory, to reflect aspects of who he is that you can't see in a sunset as beautiful as it is, that you can't hear in a piece of music no matter how wonderfully performed. There is something unique about God's glory that can only come through uniquely in the reflection that humans give of it. It's both through how we obey him and through how we trust Him, both through how we reflect His character and through how we rest in what He rep- provides to us, that we are able to reflect His glory in His world, to be the moon to His sun, with His light just bouncing off of us and reflecting all around of us. I, I guess another way to say it is that it's our, par- our purpose in life, in His image, to look something like Him so that when people notice us, what they really notice is Him. And that's freeing too. This weekend, uh, the McCullough family finally caught up to the Encanto craze that's been sweeping the land. To see for ourselves what all the fuss is about, I'll admit that the music was every bit as good as advertised. And has not stopped playing on Alexa ever since. Uh, It's been stuck in my head even when Alexa has not been on or in my presence And you may not need me to summarize the premise of this movie for you because you may have already seen it. It's a story of a, a magically gifted family in which every member of the family has a special gift that's just theirs to use for the good of the family and the community. Everyone except the main character, Mirabelle, who has no gift. At least not one that she can recognize. She sets off to find out why. And I'll leave it to you to figure out what she finds. To me, though, the most moving moment in the movie... Uh, was a song sung by a character named Louisa who's given the gift of superhuman strength to serve her community by her power. Maribel is wishing that she had a gift like Louisa. She could be useful the way Louisa is to you know like pick up buildings and move them to another spot or go get all the goats that have gotten away and toss them up one after another into a big heap on top of her shoulders and carry them home. These are literal things that Louisa does with her strength. Mar- Maribel's envying her, wishing for her own gift, when Louisa opens up about what it's like to live life that's defined by your gift. And it isn't what it seems. She sings, I'm a strong one. I'm not nervous. I'm as tough as the crust of the earth is. I move mountains. I move churches. And I glow because I know what my worth is. I take what I'm handed. I break what's demanded. But under the surface... I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. Under the surface, I think about my purpose. Can I somehow preserve this? Who am I if I don't have what it takes? It is such a powerful moment because it's such a clear example of a huge burden that comes with a common way of looking at your purpose in life. That common way goes something like this. You matter because you're special. You have something to offer that nobody else does. You are wonderfully unique as you are. So find out what makes you shine and let that light shine as bright as possible. Another way to say that is it's on me to project my glory to keep on shining for all to see. But what happens if you stumble? if you can't keep on performing? And what about when somebody else comes along and does your thing a little better than you can, shines a little brighter than you shine? If your worth comes from being special and you can't keep being special, what are you worth then? That is a terrible burden to live under. You weren't made to carry it. That is not your purpose in life. That burden is crushing because that burden is inhuman. It just blurs the line between what it is to be a human created in God's image and what it is to be God who can carry the weight, who must carry the weight, who deserves the praise of his glory in a way I was not made to. Your purpose is not to let your light shine, but to let his light shine in and through you. In our preschool classes here, our kids learn this wonderful and liberating truth from the old words of the Westminster Catechism. Why did God make you and all things? We ask our kids, and they answer for his glory. How can you glorify God? We ask our kids, and they answer by loving him and doing what he commands. There's your purpose. And friends, we know what this looks like because Christ has shown us. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Christ is the image of the invisible God. In John chapter 1, we're told that the Son of God put on flesh and lived among us. And John says, we beheld his glory a glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What glory did we see in Him? Well, John tells us in John chapter 4, Jesus speaks there and He says, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me to accomplish His work. Jesus lived for that. He was nourished by His own obedience to the Father. He only wanted To make his father happy. The sick are healed wherever Jesus goes. The hungry are fed where Jesus goes. The wayward are worn and corrected where Jesus goes. The broken down by sin or offered hope wherever Jesus goes. You want to see a reflection of God's patience? You want to see what God's glorious patience looks like? Look at Jesus relating to his disciples who were so slow to understand always who were so quick to put themselves first, always. These same men who would eventually betray him, and he knows it all the time. You want to see what God's patience looks like? Look at Jesus on the night that he was going to be betrayed by these very men on his knees, washing their filthy feet for them. There you'll see God's glory. You want to know what God's glorious mercy looks like? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross, praying for the forgiveness of the men who nailed him up there in the first place. That's what God's mercy looks like. Friends, when you look at the beauty of Jesus, do you know what you're seeing? When you look at the beauty of Jesus, you are looking at the purpose of every human life perfectly fulfilled. You are looking at the reflection of God's glory. And now maybe you're hearing me say, Jesus is the standard for your life. And you're thinking, great. Uh, you're telling me that instead of comparing myself to my own hopes and dreams, instead of comparing myself to what everyone else is doing on Instagram, you want me to compare myself to Jesus. The perfect and only son of God. And that's supposed to help me with my feelings of inadequacy? Seriously? Friends, honestly, the answer is yeah. Yeah, and it may surprise you, but it's true. Because on the one hand, when you see Jesus, you are absolutely seeing the standard that is set for all those who are made in his image. This is what we were made to grow into. And when you see Jesus, you see what it looks like to represent God's rule on earth. You see what it looks like to rest completely in God's goodness. You see what it looks like to reflect God's glory in your life. This is the life you were made for. And in, and in looking at Jesus, you can also see what Paul means in Romans chapter 3 when he says, All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If Jesus is the standard, yeah. I've fallen short. I have. You have too. And that failure is serious. Friends, you will never get over a sense of inadequacy lurking inside you by denying that your failure to meet the standard God gave you is a big deal. We have been inadequate on our own. But the unbelievably good news of the gospel is that the gospel is not... A Rachel Hollis style pep talk from Jesus. I came, I did it, you can too. Just follow me. Jesus isn't just our standard. The gospel tells us Jesus, to use John's language in 1 John, Jesus is our advocate. Not just our standard, but our advocate who is for us. His perfect life was perfect for us. His death on the cross, it it wasn't one he deserved to die. It was ours, and he died for us so that we could be forgiven for our sin against God. And when he rose, he rose for us to spend his eternal life interceding for us so that we have what we need to follow him in fulfilling our purpose. The gospel is more than what God takes away, the guilt of our sin. It is never less than that, but it is more. The gospel is also what God will make of us by his power and for his glory. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, God is at work in you to fulfill his own purpose for you. He is doing what he called you to do in you and for you. He is bringing the beauty of Jesus out of your life. If you're a Christian, Paul says in Romans 8... That before he even made you, God committed himself to make you conform to the image of his son. This is a quote from Paul, Romans 8. Before he even created your life, he was already planning to conform you to the image of his son in order that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you are in Christ, Colossians 3 says you have put on the new self and it's being renewed right now after the image of its creator. And 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, (laughs) we're a long way from glory. You look at me, you won't see much to look at. Not yet. But John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. Even now, by our hope, we are being purified as he is pure. When you look at the beauty of Jesus, you are looking at the purpose of every human life perfectly fulfilled. But when you look at Jesus... If you are in Christ, you are also looking at your future. The God who began a good work in you will carry it all the way to completion. You can trust him with that. Let's pray that he will give us that trust. Our Father, we have no hope but Jesus for fulfilling the purpose you've given to our lives. In Jesus, we have all the hope we need. So we pray that you would purify us by this hope, even as he is pure. And keep us going as we look ahead to the day on which we will see him and be like him. We pray this to you in Jesus' name, amen.